0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Michael Cornwall. Michael is a psychotherapist, and he has himself gone through a process of madness without medications. Uh, Michael worked for three years at a very innovative sanctuary alternative as part of Contra Costa County Hospital called IWARD, and uh, he's also a researcher of Diabas's House, which was a San Francisco sanctuary run by Jungian analyst uh, John Weir Perry. And Michael is also a Esalen workshop leader, and he's a blogger on Robert Whitaker's website, Mad in America. So thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio, Michael Cornwall.
1: Thank you, Will. It's good to talk with you again.
0: It's great to have you on the show. You have really lived a lot of the history of alternatives in the 70s and 80s, and you've done a lot of research on uh, Diabasis House, which was the house that John Weir Perry, the Jungian uh, analyst, set up as a way of helping people go through their experiences of psychosis and madness. And so I really am interested in the history here, um, often the history that we have not uh, heard about, especially the history of a very innovative project called IWARD, which took folks from the emergency room in contra costa county hospital and then put them into a non-medication environment we're going to be hearing um, about that you worked on i ward for three years and your experience helping people through psychosis and madness really from the perspective that it's potentially a transformative process which is very inspiring to me and I, i really am grateful for your work and really happy to have you on the show today And we're also going to be talking a little bit about this question, well, what is this thing called madness? If we're not necessarily agreeing with the biological and pharmaceutical perspective that says that madness is a malfunctioning of brain chemistry, well, what is it? And does it have positive and transformative potential to it? So it's great to have you on the show. Michael, maybe we should start by just hearing a little bit about your own uh, personal story, because you yourself are someone who went through a period of madness or psychosis, but you didn't um, receive any psychiatric care. You weren't someone who was actually hospitalized during that. So tell, tell us about that and how you were able to make it through that.
1: I was able to make it through my process that was when I was about 18 years old, which was, I think, 1966. So it, it's a long time ago. But it's still very present for me in, in my own psyche and in my work. And I was able to go through that without medication or psychiatric treatment, really any kind of treatment, because I was able to stay at my aged grandmother's house, who was about 85 years old, and she was quite demented at that point. She really didn't know what day it was, but she certainly had her unconditional love there for me. So when I went into madness, since I don't believe in the medical model or the whole concept of mental illness as it's put forward, to me, it was uh a breakdown that ended up being a a, a breakthrough it was as I see most young people who go into these processes a uh, it was an initiatory developmental hurdle into young adulthood, but it was it was very traumatic for me because uh, I, it was uh, my process was dark it was in the context of me being in a small conservative town in the northwest and of myself and my family and the culture as this alien place where I was all of a sudden living. There was a shred of my ego that was available to me, and and I knew that I had, in that time, thinking I'd I'd lost my mind. I'd lost the ability to share the consensual reality with the people around me. Uh, I was hearing voices. I was having the, the TV talk to me. And I was having these incredibly intense experiences of like dark energy and kind of a malevolent darkness that would descend on me too. It was terrifying. And I'm so grateful that my grandmother was there. At one point into this, she said, well, dear, it looks like you have the flu. You'll be getting better soon. And I, no, grandma, I don't have the flu. She didn't know what was going on. No one in my family knew what was going on. So I was basically huddled there for for months going through this and I'd be out at night walking the streets, kind of semi-raving. The police stopped me a couple of times. and But I knew instinctually from growing up in this small conservative world that people who had these kind of things happen to them ended up in the state hospital. It was like when I was a mm-hmm. child, there would be stories about kind of hushed whispers well, you, knew, you know she was taken away. Yeah. She was taken to the hospital. And, you know, those people just didn't come back. But there's also some inherent feeling that I had that what I was going through had some meaning, although it was so overwhelming and terrifying that I, I didn't feel the impulse to go seek help from professionals. In fact, I, I felt like if I did, my whole life would be defined by them for the rest of my life. I know people who've gone through recovery now and have working as a therapist all these years. Sometimes that's a big hurdle to get over, that re-identifying oneself after one's been stigmatized that way. So but at that time it was just hell on earth.
0: So you really in a sense got got lucky that you had this loving, uh, supportive, uh, natural sanctuary with your, your grandmother. You could stay there No questions asked. You could kind of be weird. doesn't sound like you were working or going to school for for months. And you were really in this alternate reality, but you had a certain degree of safety. You had a sanctuary that you could come back to.
1: Exactly right. And that, I really believe, is what then later in my life when I wanted to help people going through this process, the whole reality of sanctuary uh, is, I don't think that word is misplaced. I used to go to my grandmother when it was the worst. Uh, I would ask her, Grandma, would you put your hand on my forehead? Uh, When I was a little boy and I was sick, she she'd put her hand on my forehead, you know? And she'd do that. And So there was this loving connection, human touch. But I must say, at at one point, it had gone on for so long and hadn't slept for so long. I mean, I used to sit there at night, uh, as some people know, maybe you do. In these processes, time can really be distorted. Sometimes uh, minutes would seem like hours uh, being in this uh, state of kind of torment. So I would sit there at night with my finger on the the, uh, Yellow Pages line of of the emergency. They didn't have psych emergency, just an emergency room at the hospital. And saying, if if this hits me one more time, I'm going to call them. I just can't take it anymore. But thank goodness I didn't call him. But I was really at the breaking point. And then one day, in terms of what ended up me seeing my madness and others, as having a transpersonal, having a dimension that is mysterious, I, I was kind of a, an Ayn Rand atheist objectivist. So so part of my challenge was that my world, my, my worldview, was very kind of truncated and narrow. Although I was a kind you know, non-violent anti-war person. Anyway, one day at my grandmother's, I saw a a little thin volume there. She wasn't really religious, but there was something there. I opened it up, and the words that jumped out to me right from the page were, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And it was like, um, right in my forehead, it was like a light went on, like all this darkness and all this terror and alienation and feeling like I was an alien from outer space kind of there's something shifted like maybe there is love in this universe too that has this kind of numinous power and a night or two after that I, I just said I, I just got to trust in something and I let go Will and I kind of just it was like I fell back off, or, off of a 10-story building inside myself and there was all kinds of explosions of lights and energy and everything it was pretty amazing it was like I died in a way. And, and after that, it was like my heart started to fill with hope, my mind started to clear, the relentless voice that was tormenting me diminished and went away, and I really came out of it. The whole thing went out, had gone on for on and off intensity for about a year so, it really set the course of my life <laughs> ever since.
0: That's such an amazing story. I'm really struck by the presence of your grandmother in all of this. I mean, the fact that she would say, well, you're just going through the flu and you'll get better. I mean, it's such a loving kind of positive thing to say in a sense. Maybe it was a much better thing than someone freaking out and saying, oh my God, you're psychotic, let's get you some help and you, we've got to get you out of this. And, and what an incredible resource that you had in her and, and in her love.
1: Yes, and that's so important because at this date now, so many years later, I would say for the people I've known who've been through these processes and the people I've served and in these sanctuaries, uh, it reminds me of a workshop I co-led with Lauren Mosier, I'm sure some of your audience knows him and Matt Morrissey from Birch House. The three of us are on this panel, and and we basically agreed that whether it was Mosher's Soteria House or Diabasis House or the I Ward where I was or Birch House or Lang's Kingsley Hall, that the one common thing that really was provided that people needed was that human connection, that human-hearted caring. That that was really the healing balm. So I'm a believer now. Some of the things I trainings I do, and even something I wrote on Mad in America, I actually talk about responding lovingly to people in this madness process. And it's exactly what you said. That's what happened to me by with my grandmother.
0: So it sounds like it was really a combination of the consistent love, having that that safe place to be, and then also time. Do you feel like the process just played itself out, and then it reached a point? I'm really interested in. In how it was, you think that you just suddenly flipped to this more transpersonal, spiritual, connected, hopeful space because you were in such a darkness and so much fear and so much suffering and torment before that.
1: Well, it really was like a, an epiphany when I when I read in that book. It was from the scripture, Jesus' words. I'm not a uh, evangelical Christian trying to proselytize here. I'm not a Christian actually but the words come unto me all ye who are labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest there was something numinous in those words that spoke directly to my condition. Uh, some kind of a spiritual code you know and uh, from that point that's, that was the turning point. It was like the spiritual darkness that I was experiencing. All of a sudden I realized wait a minute I thought this was all there was but no there is there is spiritual light, and yes, I could feel it from my grandmother, but the kind of numinous spiritual light that came through that, I realized that from going from kind of a materialist objectivist atheist, I was now someone who could claim my right to have connection with a loving, higher power. however, you know that ended up being defined
0: now was your sort of previous identity as the materialist objectivist was that would you say that that was less of an open hearted Less emotionally expressive, you, and then the transition when you saw this um, this incredible numinous message from the scriptures was that a heart opening experience. Was that the turning point? Was when you kind of moved from a more head disengaged person to a more open hearted person?
1: Yes, I'd say that's true. Although before I had this happen to me, I was a gentle, kind, and loving person. But I, I think some of that objectivist, materialist. I only believe it if I bite into it. Uh, I don't know if some people are familiar with this, Ayn Rand philosophy. I think part of that was kind of my my way of individuating and separating from my family and kind of saying, you know, I have boundaries and that kind of stuff. But after going through that immersion in that dark experience for months, then to have kind of a co-equal light that's what was the real significant thing and but i must say now in my work and ever since then i realized too that that kind of spiritual darkness or that that phonic dionysian uh, mad world feeling that's also part of our our birthright and i think i object to some of the emphasis on the spiritual emergency thinking that you know the elevator only goes up that spirituality is only filled with light, and uh, I'll talk a little bit later about one of the people I worked with on IWARD who had this kind of polarity of dark and light, and, and kind of integrating those two, I think, is part of what happens during Madness, too, and, and it's the underworld journey, if a person gets stuck there, that's really bad, that's, I always, almost got stuck there, but so I got to get up into the light, too.
0: So, the underworld for you was really a lot of fear, and were you having like all kinds of violent images, or were you? You said that there were like malevolent forces. I mean, you really felt terrified, it sounds like.
1: I mean, I must say, uh, I'm not here like talking about spirits and things, although I believe those things are, are real. It was more like the world became this incredibly dark and foreboding, forbidding place where normal ways that people talked about love and how in my family the kind of veneer of kindness that really was over a lot of unkindness and manipulativeness and meanness all that kind of infused my experience when I was in that dark place but I I must say there would be times will when I would be so exhausted you know when you haven't slept for two or three weeks and you're I I mean I'm hallucinating and but I would feel this buzzing, dark energy that really felt harmful to me. It was kind of like holding me down. And even talking about it kind of spooks me. It's, it's, it's something that I've seen a lot of people going through madness have these uncanny experiences. And I think reducing all this down to some formula that gets explained in the DSM has never satisfied me.
0: <laughs> well, there's something definitely a lot deeper going on here, and you're a Jungian psychotherapist, and you, know, you mentioned integration. And it sounds like, in a sense, because we were, we were talking about your transition from someone who was sort of mentally, you were very into into a kind of mechanistic and materialist view to being open to more transpersonal and spiritual perspectives. It sounds like there was some kind of process of development that went on where your madness was really a, a gateway or a stepping stone for you to contact new parts of yourself and awaken parts of yourself to bring you into greater Wholeness to, to complement this kind of more one sided person that you had been to open you up. And it was a forceful process, but like force in the sense of birth, that birth can be painful and dark and terrifying and in a sense violent, but it's needed to make something new.
1: Absolutely. And that's what I really think is missed by practitioners who don't see that, that this process as having an initiatory, purposive, so many young people become mad right at that juncture into young adulthood. And there was, kind of, there was this need of me dying to my old ways, dying to my old persona, my old kind of uh, macho Idaho uh, self for my inner life to move forward. So this is what I saw, too, when I worked on the I-Ward Sanctuary. Time after time, people would come in because we didn't medicate them they went through this kind of classic thing that John Perry describes where there are these different poles of energy and emotion. And emotion is so important, Uh, the emotions of terror and the emotions of joy. Uh, The first person I was asked to work with there, uh, I'd been working there for about a week uh, on this 20 bed open door no medication no restraint sanctuary that operated in Northern California and they said Michael your first responsibility is in the back day room and I went back there and there was this young woman standing on a table totally nude in this ecstatic transport going glorious 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 she was fully in this madness ecstatic state and I thought, oh my, how am I going to help her? But I did help her finally get down and get a blanket around her. But her process, Will, went from that extreme, like Perry talks about, these different extremes, to a real dark process that I certainly could identify with. She went from, she would actually say at one point in a day or two, into it. she says, my left hand is Satan. It's dark. It's And her whole visage, her whole face and energy would change. And then she'd go, but my right hand is of the Virgin Mary. And you could see this schism right in this wonderful person. So she went through this whole process without medication. And those two polarities got resolved. So the polarities of good and evil, male, female, that whole kind of gender confusion that sometimes happens during a madness process. Dark light, life, death, sorrow, joy, all of that, <clears throat> all those polarities have that archetypal quality that if they're not medicated and if they're received by another person in a loving way, they do transform themselves.
0: It's so difficult to imagine a place for someone to be in such an extreme state without immediately being medicated or being controlled or being forced out of that state. But you really saw, and the folks you were working with, really saw the value of someone being able to go through and experience these different parts of themselves. Now let's, let's back up a minute because how was it that IWARD was created and how did you end up working there? This was a, a special sanctuary that was part of Contra Costa County Hospital. That was And what year was this?
1: I started working there in 1980, and it had been open for about five years. The history of this, I think, is very important, too. Uh, Some of it's been rewritten by psychiatry. Some of it's been oppressed. Back in the early 1960s, just to give a little bit of the history, Richard Price, who was the co-founder of the Esalen Institute, got together with Michael Murphy, and they formed Esalen. And Richard had been through his own process had been shock treatment and forced hospitalization. And they wanted Esalen to be, if not an outright sanctuary, to, to support these kind of things. So they started doing these long conferences, somewhere a, a month long, where pioneers like Artie Lang and Fritz Perls, John Perry, Gregory Bateson, Alan Watts, Eric Erickson, these people would get together and meet to talk about madness. What is it? And they actually came up with an initiative. Of uh, alternative views and approaches to psychosis. Stan Groff was part of that. So, out of that, Esalen Institute, with the help of John Perry and Lauren Mosier, was involved some, and also the man Stanley Marison, who formed iWard, they went to the Agnew State Hospital and, and started the largest ever National Institute in Mental Health funded first episode psychosis program. Most people don't know about this. The research findings were suppressed, finally got published a few years after it. But what it was, there was a large group of young men in their first episode of Madness who got Thorazine and a large group, I think there was about 50 in each group, who didn't get anything but placebo. It was a double-blind study. Nobody knew who was getting what. And of course, for the people who got the Thorazine, their so-called symptoms rapidly were decreased or suppressed. The people who didn't get the medication went on and went through one of these processes like went on a diabetes or eye ward. But what was remarkable, at three-year follow-up, the people who didn't get the medication had a 75% lower rehospitalization rate. I was just at a conference a week or so ago where Bob Whitaker was quoting these these results. These results then went to John Perry, who went to the... San Francisco mental health people and said, "Let's do a sanctuary based on these Agnew Hospital efficacy results." So he was able to open Diaposis House there. Stanley Meyerson came to Contra Costa County and opened I Ward, and so that's how these three programs. Mosier kind of came from a different angle. He'd already had some uh, time as head of the NIMH Schizophrenia Project back east, and when he started Soteria, but his his Soteria House was also greatly supported by this initial Agnews thing. So here we had three of these programs open will at the same time, three sanctuaries at the same time.
0: It's like a psychiatric spring in a sense.
1: It was. It was so wonderful. And so I was working. uh, I moved from Idaho just to give people a little history. I was up there, and I was going to go into the Episcopal priesthood and be a, uh, a counselor for people who were in distress like I had been. But my... Wise spiritual director told me I was too rebellious for that and recommended I come down in the Bay Area to go to a transpersonal program at John Kennedy University. So I came down here, started work in a traditional psychiatric hospital, worked there for about a year, and then heard about I Ward and went over to work there. And uh, talk about night and day. For like you say, everyone who came to that private psychiatric hospital was a high end place. Immediately got put on medications on I Ward. It was a total opposite. We didn't diagnose anyone, we didn't test anyone. People never heard of IWARD because we didn't want to do the research that would have shown what we were doing. It it was really more radical in some ways than Soteria and Diabasis. So it was open for eight years, 20 beds, freestanding, off by itself, no restraints. When people would go into a full-blown, violent, raging place. We would take them in a safe room. Three or four of us would hold someone, even a large male. We would hold them sometimes for hours as they would rage. We never restrained anyone. Every time someone went into that raging process, after a time they would start to kind of sob, would get regressed and would kind of cuddle into us. That was usually like a real turning point in their process. So we really did something there that was a true sanctuary. And uh, it was a shame to see as the 80s wore on the kind of encroachment of the biomedical model, the decision makers that you know, ran these counties said, you know, these things are not okay anymore. We need to medicate everyone. So that's, what's, that's the standard of care now. If
0: you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're speaking with Michael Cornwall, who's a psychotherapist who has himself gone through a process of madness without medication. He worked for three years at I-Ward, which was an alternative sanctuary for people going through psychosis, and we are talking today about the transformative power of madness. Well, this is really important to understand because when you, you talked about the comparison study that was done between the use of medications and then not using them on on iWard. And it's important to understand that when medications are used, yeah, people calm down. They settle down, they can get under control quickly and the people who aren't being medicated, they they may very well continue in their extreme state. Their extreme state may get worse, it may get more extreme, it may get more wild. I mean, being naked and becoming violent, I mean, these are things that are very far from what's considered acceptable behavior. But what you're saying is that if you got past that initial point and you allowed someone to go through their experience, that ultimately the end results are they end up needing hospitalization less, they come out more whole, they come out grateful for what they went through, they're able to function better, whereas the folks who've been medicated who initially, yeah, they do calm down, but they don't get that long-term benefit, so it's a kind of a paradoxical logic. If you allow someone to be extreme in the short term, in the long term, they might, and and this study and this experience shows, be able to have long-term benefits and be actually be able to be more stable in the long term. Is that a fair way to kind of summarize what the um, the paradox is here?
1: I think it's a great summary, and it, it is a paradox, and. To, to hold that faith that people's long-term well-being is at stake. And I know now that the what I hear from my psychiatrist friends is the belief that every second someone is in a psychotic process, irreparable brain damage is, is being visited on them. I, I don't believe that. The research shows that the brain imaging, they point to that. But I must say, That's the standard version that I hear from psychiatrists these days. So, but even back then, back in the 1980s, there was pressure to medicate people. There was another ward on the hospital grounds where I ward was called J ward, where was the standard medication restraints. So we were operating really on faith, but it wasn't just blind faith. It was based on these Agnews results, it was based on RD Lang's results, it was based on you know some of the things were coming out of s- Soteria, and even if it go, even if you go back to someone named Boyson, you know you might have heard of him, a therapist back in the 30s. Frieda From Reichman, uh, the psychoanalyst, some of the early uh, Quakers, the moral therapy, you know, allowing people to go through these processes we did have that faith that people could go through their process. And I must say this young woman that was there for about two months resolved her inner polarities and different issues. I mean, it is a passage into young adulthood. She had issues with her marriage that was shaky. And I certainly had issues from my childhood and my life that contributed to my need to go through this really radical process myself. But A couple of years after she'd been through it, Will, I hadn't heard from her at all. She hadn't been back to the system at all. Uh, I got a phone call from her. She was looking for a referral for a family member for some therapy services. And I asked her how she was doing. And it was almost like matter of fact, she said to me, oh, Michael, I got all mine out on iWard. So what she went through there was what she needed to do. So...
0: And I think there's something very um, common sense and intuitive to this. I mean, think about any emotion that we have, any strong emotion that we have. If we just interrupt it, if we just suppress it, if we just say, no, no, that's not okay, and we try and get rid of it, it doesn't allow the emotion to do what it needs to do in a natural process that it actually can be damaging to us. It, It comes back to haunt us later, and actually a lot of times you just need to be in strong emotions. And if you look at madness as just an extreme of so-called normal spectrum of behavior, then it makes sense that this is a natural process and people need to be given the space and opportunity to just express themselves and to explore it and to go through it. And then eventually they will come back to where they need to come back to.
1: I'm so glad you said that because emotion to me is the primary engine that drives our life every second of it and those strong emotions that really come up necessarily when someone is in this kind of crisis that have been there before and have been often repressed and they break through. To me the the so-called symptoms of the delusions, the voices, uh, hallucinations, in fact our our thinking comes comes up out of that emotional substrate that we're in every second so I think what the medications do, I know what they do, they, they dampen the emotion. I, I, to me, it, people don't have a thought disorder. Uh, they have an emotional need to, like you say, express experience. And so the people, after the sanctuary closed that I worked with, who were on medication, sometimes they came off medication, they, it's almost like they intuitively knew they wanted to have these emotions be able to be felt, identified, named, claimed expressed that kind of narrow emotional life that is the fate of most people who are in the system long term I think speaks to the fact that emotion is not bad we need to have the ability to to live our emotional truths all those all those emotions that broad range of emotion that's our birthright and when people are mad those emotions come out very intensely it's it's wild sexuality it's it's raging It's incredible grief. It's terror. And the humane thing to do seems like, well, let let me give you this medication and you won't be feeling this right now. But it's almost like a birth metaphor. Someone needs to go through birth and birth is not easy. It's harrowing sometimes. But if you stop the birth, then the person kind of stays stuck in the birth canal. Does that make sense?
0: And I see this all the time in my work, people who've been long-term on medications and they feel like something is missing and they've missed an opportunity to learn and grow from these parts of themselves that they've turned into or they've been told by psychiatry and by the system that these are pathological parts, these are signs of a problem or a breakdown or a malfunction that we just need to get rid of them. And people start to say, well, wait a second, there's something of me in that that I need for my growth and, I, and people want to recontact some of that emotional richness because it's valuable for the growth process and the, um, the standard framework for treating psychosis has no understanding of the role of this as a potentially um, natural part of human development and human growth that you're, that you're describing. What are some other um, experiences that you had with people that you worked with in, in iward
1: most of the people that came there were in this intense, what they would call florid process like the young woman was in. So we worked with a lot of people. We did, we did family therapy, which I think was helpful. And sometimes it, it was very similar to what I hear the open dialogue approaches, getting the whole kind of support network and matrix of the person's life there. But also there were a few people who came in that were really kind of closed down, which had the presentation of what later, you know, they would get labeled hebophrenic, schizophrenic, you know, without a lot of affect, without a lot of symbolic stuff, or no delusional. It
0: would be called catatonic, negative symptoms, or yeah,
1: negative symptoms, and they were on their way to the back wards of the state hospital. Just because of my experience, that I wore my own experience after I ward closed, I worked with some of those people, and I uh, I did uh, Jungian dream work with them, trying to like restart that fire inside to try and find that current of emotion that was in there. Of course, dreams are full of emotion. They have that archetypal imagery, but also the archetypal emotion. And I worked with one person who would actually been on I-Ward and didn't go through this dramatic process. But it took me years working with him in the the community on his dreams. And he was a so-called paranoid schizophrenic, just like we were talking. He'd have periods of dreams where it was all about rage, all about his rage, and every time he would get to a certain degree of rage, he would, like, become psychotic. Well, after we worked through all these dreams and everything, he could experience rage, and he wouldn't become psychotic. He could experience increased and intense desire, and there were all the dreams that came in kind of a a series of those. Then there was, finally we got to the end, this incredible grief and sadness he had about an early childhood trauma that I asked him, how long have you been experiencing this, he says, well, every day I've seen you for the last eight years, it's been with me. See what I mean? So he finally got to the a core emotion. He went through that. Will, he went on to be able to, no medication, was married, had a child, had a job. He could live a full emotional life. So I'm, I'm not of the school that says spiritual emergency, dramatic psychosis uh, processes just for people in the acute phase. I believe that everyone by definition, if they're in a madness process, they're in a transpersonal and archetypal process. Even if they're out on the streets in Berkeley with a shopping cart walking, I've worked with some people like that who made a connection with me. The key to do the dream work or anything is that loving connection. I mean, I would see this one guy like two or three times a week. And some of the people who were out on the street, I would go and see them. And soon they were like coming in to see me and really cleared up just by that loving connection.
0: I think that's so important, Michael, what you're you're saying is, is that we give up on people and we give up on them in the name of a lot of different things, our theoretical interpretation, the fact that they've been stuck for so long or they seem like they've been stuck for so long. And you are really part of the trend that I think is so important, which is to never give up on people and to always believe that they have that potential for transformation. Because I think meeting someone who has that attitude and who makes a connection and becomes close with you, that itself can help make the process move forward and make it come true for people, I think, having that expectation. Because so many times people get the message that, you know, we've we've given up on you, there's there's nothing for you. And that just reinforces the inner sense of despair and hopelessness.
1: I totally agree with you and I, I never have. I never will give up on anyone. I, I believe, just like you say, people are just waiting <laughs> for someone uh, to come connect with him that way. One of the people I know who was a psychiatric nurse told me about she was in a state hospital working with a woman who had been catatonic for 20 years, hadn't spoken. It was the first contact she'd had with this woman and she was bathing her, you know, like holding her and bathing her and her heart really opened just feeling so much compassion for this woman and what she'd been through and she was bathing her all of a sudden this woman who had just been waiting there frozen all these years turned to her and said mommy and that was a that was a turning point the woman came out of her catatonia it's so important as we move into the whole kind of new paradigm of recovery for everyone that that means everyone
0: and Michael, tell us about your your research on um, John Perry's Diabasis House, which was a sanctuary house in San Francisco. Very similar um, in a lot of ways to I Ward. People were supported to go through their um, their uh, madness experiences with the expectation that it had meaning, and it didn't need to be medicated. And art and creativity and dream work were used to really contact these deeper parts of people's experience. Tell, tell us about, um, House.
1: Yes. Well, that was another wonderful experience I had was to get to know John Perry, who actually came over and was very collegial and met with the i ward staff, was telling us about his work. And I said, that's the guy I want to be my therapist. My whole time after I went through my madness process, well, I never talked to anybody about it. I'd never been in therapy about it. I felt unsafe doing that. But when I heard Perry talk about his work, Uh, So I went into analysis with him for four years, starting about 1981 and was able to talk about, you know, what I'd been through and everything. And then that shifted into, after my analysis was over, becoming friends and colleagues and then me doing a doctoral uh, study, follow-up study on diabetes, which was a smaller, about a seven-bed place in San Francisco, very similar to I, Ward, and in terms of the loving sanctuary energy, but Diabasis didn't stress the whole need for family therapy and all the uh, the work that we did on iWAR. They really believed, and I believe Perry was right on this, the psyche obviously can go through these experiences without the family necessarily being involved, although I think the open dialogue thing is wonderful, but it also can be done if those archetypal energies are understood and solicited so the people who went through their process on at Diabasis House had basically the same results about eighty percent of, of them weren't in the system after they went through that uh, one remarkable person that I interviewed for my research was a an attorney a young attorney whose family had kind of set her on this path to be a lawyer yeah, but her soul didn't want to be a lawyer so she went through this whole deep process at Diabasis without medications came out the other side, and she never practiced law. She's a very, very happy artist. (laughs) So Perry, I think, had a great continuation of Jung's work on madness. And not being a shy person in the mid-'80s, I asked John if he would be my mentor, because when John was 22, Jung visited Perry's house. Perry's father was the bishop of the Anglican Church in the United States, and Perry had a dream that he brought to Jung the next morning. Then after World War II, Perry ended up being in Zurich and Jung said, I don't want you to be an analysis with me. I want you to come see me every two weeks and we'll talk for an hour or two. Uh, Go be an analysis with Tony Wolf and C.A. Myers. So Perry's in this dual analysis. But while he was there, he was seeing Jung all the time. So I wanted that kind of free ranging discussion with Perry. And he said, sure. So I would go over to Marin County for about the next 15 years every month or so. And we'd hang out. So I had this rich experience of being with John Perry, who my work was really influenced by that in terms of that deep kind of faith in the psyche itself, seeking wholeness.
0: And the fate of Diabasis House and Iward, and also remind us what, what does Diabasis mean?
1: Diabasis means crossing over. So is that whole vision of helping someone through their process?
0: The fate of Diabasis House and Iward was similar: it was lack of funding, political obstacles and sort of a fear and a professional conservatism that says, no, you can't, you can't work this way.
1: Well, I think the thing that closed down all of those sanctuaries in Soteria too was the growing biomedical paradigm that edged out any alternative like that. So the pressure was on them county mental health directors and decision makers that funded those programs of these, th- these programs, these sanctuaries are no longer consistent with the standard of care that is being advanced by psychiatry, that is really being supported by the NAMI parents really wanted a different vision of care. And so in in the nineteen eighties actually there was legislation passed in California, the Bronson legislation, which not only was instrumental in the sanctuary's closing, but said that all funding should go for people with so called severely and persistently severely and persistently mentally ill. So even people like me who was doing therapy in these uh, community clinics, we were cut off too. (laughs) So the whole world shrunk down, Will, in terms of the whole emphasis on the psychology, the soul of people to where basically it was medication, case management, and that persists to this day, doesn't it?
0: And were there times when you worked with people and they just didn't seem to get better or they got worse, or maybe this wasn't the right approach for them?
1: Well, like I said, that one client that I ended up working with for about eight years in the community that didn't benefit directly from the eye ward, diaposis kind of acute first episode approach. He had a much deeper kind of wound that it took a long time to heal. But I must say, I've never worked with anyone in the community who was on meds or off meds who didn't benefit from that kind of heart-centered focus on them reclaiming their emotional life I just haven't seen it. I, I, I was recently called to go help someone, a family, whose son had been on meds for 10 years. And it was, it was immediately clear that he was just waiting for someone to listen to him. So a lot of it is being in that receptive mode. So many times we interrupt and we ask questions. And I, I spent 40 minutes with this young person. Well, he's in his 30s now. And he just poured out his whole kind of story in 40 minutes. I, I, didn't, I didn't say a single word. So I'd, I'd recommend any therapists out there listening try listening a little more with your clients because they really have a story to tell if we can kind of get out of the way.
0: I think that all the research really points to the truth of that you're saying that it's really the human connection that's really yeah. that really is what breaks down with madness and that's really what heals people. And if we can just, what doesn't matter which modality doesn't matter which tradition people come from, it's all about that relationship and that human connection. And that's the tragedy is that we've got a treatment system that doesn't value that, that sees things in terms of medication and control and stabilization and loses sight of the humanness of what people are, are going through. And so the Jungian analyst, um, John Ware Perry, who who started and directed diabetes, he was a real mentor and influence uh, for you. What were, what were some of the main things that you got from uh, your studies with him?
1: Well, the main thing was this model of being with someone that you just described so well of being with them, that human heartedness and receiving their process uh, no matter what it was. But also it was this encouragement to be a free thinker. Uh, He told me that Jung made it clear to him and all the Jungians were there in Zurich, don't be like me, go do your thing. And so how that got realized by me was one evening I was at John Perry's house And I told him something that I felt like I would discovered that made his jaw drop. I'd never seen him kind of at a loss for words. And he was almost giddy saying, we all missed this, Michael. You found something here very valuable. You must publish it. You must publish it. And so let me just say uh, for some listeners, this may seem a little esoteric, but for the Jungians or people who are interested in the mythological transpersonal level of madness or consciousness. In Jung's autobiography, uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflection, there's a great emphasis on his first dream where you might remember that will, where he goes down into an underground chamber. He's a little boy and he's young when he has this dream. It's like the seminal dream that sets his whole course of being who he was. And there's an, an altar there and on the altar is this large, he doesn't know what it is at first, but it's this living form there that turns out to be this thonic, phallic underground deity and all of a sudden in the dream his mother is there at his side and says yes just look at him the man-eater kind of with scorn and hatred and fear and Jung woke up and he describes his whole life being affected by this dream all of his understanding of the unconscious having a lot to do with this this kind of underworld experience. So it, it it relates to me because my madness experience was a very underworld experience. So at one point I was connecting the dots on this and realized that nobody, not John Perry or any of the Jungians I'd read, Hillman or Jung himself, connected the dots with this underground force being the god Dionysus of antiquity, this Liberating the mad God. So I told this to Perry one time that this was clearly a vision that Jung had of the mad God, Dionysus. That's one of his epiphanies of his madness and his savagery and his whole kind of uncivilized talk about emotion. Dionysus represents this outside-the-walls emotion. So I, I think I just wanted to say that these kind of energies that I felt touching me, that I saw in that young woman when she was saying half of her is full of this dark, earthy, scary energy, that some of that, that's the hardest thing for us to accept, I think, in ourselves or when people are mad, that there is this uncanny archetypal level of the psyche that in our modern science the last 200 years, we pretty much said our light of reason <laughs> will banish all of these kind of specters.
0: Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned the Greek god Dionysus because you know so much of Western civilization prides itself being based on Greek philosophy and the tradition that comes from Greek civilization. And even the most rational of the Greek philosophers and writers and theorists very, very strongly believed in what you're saying, and the vital power of mythology and the gods as an active active influence in our lives and somehow we've we've taken what we think you know is the rational part, and we've forgotten about this deeply deeply irrational mad side and it makes me think um uh, Michael about you know the the role that madness played in Jung's own learning and teaching because he himself went through a period of what could be called psychosis. And then he, he wrote the Red Book out of that and he developed this incredible um, understanding and learning from that as the wellspring of his entire philosophy and his entire um, science came from the insights and knowledge and experiences that he himself went through in his madness. And so you're saying that his early dream shows this process And it's something that he himself recognized. And it wasn't acknowledged very much in the Jungian community. Recently, we had the publication of Jung's uh, Red Book. And if you read it, it's, it's pretty out there. I mean, it's the writings of someone who is pretty much going through a madness experience. And Jung said, wow, this doesn't seem rational. It doesn't make sense to a certain scientific mind. But it's absolutely true that my own creativity my own insights, my own development of psychology came in large part from my own experiences of madness. And I think that's a big part of the message here that instead of just tossing these parts of us, ourselves aside as if they're just broken or pathological or misfiring neurons in our brain chemistry that we really need to value them as creative potential sources of dis- of discovery of parts of ourselves that we absolutely need.
1: You said it beautifully and there, there are gifts from our madness, the, madness isn't a pathological thing. It's a mystery. It can be painful, but the, the, all those levels that you mentioned of Jung, and then, yes, I recommend anybody looking at the Red Book and imagining that he wasn't in just what we're describing. It's a, a source of incredible creativity, and I think our last couple of centuries of so much valuing reason over the emotional, over the irrational. The King Pentheus said to Dionysus uh, in one of the plays, said, I am going to lock you in an iron cage. That's what he said to to the irrational God. I'm going to lock you in an iron cage. I often feel like psychiatry is trying to lock that wild, irrational, life-giving source of us in an iron cage, whether it's with medication or whatever.
0: Michael, we don't have uh, much time left. And can you just give us contact information if people want to find out more about your work and get in touch with you?
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. They can uh, contact me uh, on madinamerica.com. I am a blogger there. And I can give my email address, michael.cornwall at att.net. And I'd be glad to answer any questions or comments. People want to ask me.
0: Michael Cornwall, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Thank you, Will. It's been wonderful.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Michael Cornwall. He's a psychotherapist who has himself gone through a process of madness without medication. He worked for three years at the Alternative Sanctuary Eye Ward and was also a researcher of John Weir Perry's San Francisco Sanctuary Diabasis. Uh, Michael is a Eslin workshop teacher, and he's a blogger on madinamerica.com. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice with technical assistance from Jeremy Lantzman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica radio network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.